Chapter Nine of Through the Magic Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Through the Magic Door by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Nine. The contemplation of my fine little regiment of French military memoirs had brought me to the question of Napoleon himself and you see that i have a very fair line dealing with him also there is scott's life which is not entirely a success his ink was too precious to be shed in such a venture but here are the three volumes of the physician bourrienne that bourrienne who knew him so well does anyone ever know a man so well as his doctor they're quite excellent and admirably translated meneval also the patient meneval who wrote for untold hours to dictation at ordinary talking speed and yet was expected to be legible and to make no mistakes. At least his master could not fairly criticise his legibility, for is it not on record that when Napoleon's holograph account of an engagement was laid before the President of the Senate, the worthy man thought it was a drawn plan of the battle? Meneval survived his master and has left an excellent intimate account of him. There is Constance's account also written from that point of view in which it is proverbial that no man is a hero but of all the vivid terrible pictures of napoleon the most haunting is by a man who never saw him and whose book was not directly dealing with him i mean taine's account of him in the first volume of the origins de france contemporaine you can never forget it once you have read it he produces his effect in a wonderful and to me a novel way he does not for example say in mere crude words that napoleon had a more than medieval italian cunning he presents a succession of documents, gives a series of contemporary instances to prove it, and having got that fixed in your head by blow after blow, he passes on to another phase of his character, his cold-hearted amorousness, his power of work, his spoiled child wilfulness, or some other quality, and piles up his illustrations of that. Instead, for example, of saying that the Emperor had a marvellous memory for detail, we have the account of the head of artillery laying the list of all the guns in france before his master who looked over it and remarked yes but you have omitted two in the fort near dieppe so the man is gradually etched with indelible ink it is a wonderful figure of which you are conscious in the end the figure of an archangel but surely of an archangel of darkness we will after taine's method take one fact and let it speak for itself napoleon left a legacy and a codicil to his will to a man who tried to assassinate wellington there is the medieval italian again he was no more a corsican than the englishman born in india is a hindu read the lives of the borgias the sforzas the medicis and all of the lustful cruel broad-minded art-loving talented despots of the little italian states including genoa from which the bonapartes migrated there at once you get the real descent of the man with all the stigmata clear upon him the outward calm the inward passion the layer of snow above the volcano everything which characterized the old despots of his native land the pupils of machiavelli but all raised to the dimensions of genius you can whitewash him as you may but you will never get a layer thick enough to cover the stain of that cold-blooded deliberate endorsement of his noble adversary's assassination another book which gives an extraordinarily vivid picture of the man is this one the memoirs of madame de Rumersat. she was in daily contact with him at the court and she studied him with those quick critical eyes of a clever woman 
the most unerring things in life when they are not blinded by love if you have read those pages you feel that you know him as if you had yourself seen and talked with him his singular mixture of the small and the great his huge sweep of imagination his very limited knowledge his intense egotism his impatience of obstacles his boorishness his gross impertinence to women his diabolical playing upon the weak side of every one with whom he came into contact they make up among them one of the most striking of historical portraits most of my books deal with the days of his greatness but here you see is a three-volumed account of those weary years at st helena who can help pitying the mewed eagle and yet if you play the great game you must pay a stake this was the same man who had a royal duke shot in a ditch because he was a danger to his throne was he not himself a danger to every throne in europe why so harsh a retreat as st helena you say remember that he had been put in a milder one before that he had broken away from it and that the lives of fifty thousand men had paid for the mistaken leniency all of this is forgotten now and the pathetic picture of the modern prometheus chained to his rock and devoured by the vultures of his own bitter thoughts is the one impression which the world has retained it is always so much easier to follow the emotions than the reason especially where cheap magnanimity and second-hand generosity are involved but reason must still insist that europe's treatment of napoleon was not vindictive and that hudson lowe was a man who tried to live up to the trust which had been committed to him by his country it was certainly not a post from which any one would hope for credit if he were slack and easy-going all would be well but there would be a chance of a second flight with its consequences if he were strict and assiduous he would be assuredly represented as a petty tyrant i am glad when you are on outpost said lowe's general in some campaign for then i am sure of a sound rest he was on outpost at st helena and because he was true to his duties europe france included had a sound rest but he purchased it at the price of his own reputation the greatest schemer in the world having nothing else on which to vent his energies turned them all to the task of vilifying his guardian it was natural enough that he who had never known control should not brook it now it is natural also that sentimentalists who have not thought of the details should take the emperor's point of view what is deplorable however is that our own people should be misled by one-sided accounts and that they should throw to the wolves a man who was serving his country in a post of anxiety and danger with such responsibility upon him as few could have endured let them remember montholon's remark an angel from heaven would not have satisfied us let them recall also that low with ample material never once troubled to state his own case je fis mon devoir essuie de faire pour le reste said he in his interview with the emperor they were no idle words apart from this particular epoch french literature which is so rich in all its branches is richest of all in its memoirs whenever there was anything of interest going forward there was always some kindly gossip who knew all about it and was ready to set it down for the benefit of posterity our own history has not nearly enough of these charming sidelights look at our sailors in the napoleonic wars for example they played an epoch-making part for nearly twenty years freedom was a refugee upon the seas had our navy been swept away then all europe would have been one organized despotism at times everybody was against us fighting against their own direct interests under the pressure of that terrible hand we fought on the waters with the french with the spaniards with the danes with the russians with the turks even with our american kinsmen 
middies grew into post-captains and admirals into dotards during that prolonged struggle and what have we in literature to show for it all marriott's novels many of which are founded upon personal experience nelson's and collingwood's letters lord cochrane's biography that's about all i wish we had more of collingwood for he wielded a fine pen do you remember the sonorous opening of his trafalgar message to his captains the ever-to-be-lamented death of lord viscount nelson duke of bronte the commander-in-chief who fell in the action of the twenty-first in the arms of victory covered with glory whose memory will be ever dear to the british navy and the british nation whose zeal for the honour of his king and for the interests of his country will be ever held up as a shining example for a british seaman leaves me to a duty to return thanks etc etc it was a worthy sentence to carry such a message written too in a raging tempest with sinking vessels all around him but in the main it is a poor crop from such a soil no doubt our sailors were too busy to do much writing but none the less one wonders that among so many thousands there were not some to understand what treasure their experiences would be to their descendants i can call to mind the old three-deckers who used to rot in portsmouth harbour and i have often thought could they tell their tales what a missing chapter in our literature they could supply it is not only in napoleonic memoirs that the french are so fortunate the almost equally interesting age of louis the fourteenth produced an even more wonderful series if you go deeply into the subject you are amazed by their number and you feel as if every one at the court of the roy salil had done what he or she could to give away their neighbours just to take the more obvious there are st simon's memoirs those in themselves give us a more comprehensive an intimate view of the age than anything i know of which treats the times of queen victoria then there is st evermore who is nearly as complete do you want the view of a woman of quality there are the letters of madame de savine eight volumes of them perhaps the most wonderful series of letters that any woman has ever penned do you want the confessions of a rake of the period here too are the salacious memoirs of the mischievous Dr. Wachelaar. Not reading for the nursery, certainly, not even for the boudoir, but a strange and very intimate picture of the times. All these books fit into each other, for the characters of the one reappear in the others. You come to know them quite familiarly before you have finished, their loves and their hates, their duels, their intrigues and their ultimate fortunes. If you do not care to go so deeply into it, you only have to put julia pardo's four-volumed court of louis the fourteenth upon your shelf and you will find a very admirable condensation or a distillation rather for most of the salt is left behind there is another book too that big one on the bottom shelf which holds it all between its brown and gold covers an extravagance that for it cost me some sovereigns but it's something to have the portraits of all that wonderful galaxy of louis of the devout Matinon, the frail Montespan, of Bousset, Fenelon, Moliere, Racine, Pascal, Conde, Torin, and all the saints and sinners of the age, if you want to make yourself a present and chance upon the copy of The Court and Times of Louis the Fourteenth, you will never think that your money has been wasted. Well, I have bored you unduly, my patient friend, with my love of memoirs, Napoleonic and otherwise which give a touch of human interest to the arid records of history. 
not that history should be arid it ought to be the most interesting subject upon the earth the story of ourselves our forefathers of the human race the events which made us what we are and wherein if weissman's views hold the field some microscopic fraction of this very body for which the instant we chance to inhabit may have borne a part but unfortunately the power of accumulating knowledge and that of imparting it are two very different things and the uninspired historian becomes merely the dignified compiler of an enlarged almanac worst of all when a man does come along with fancy and imagination who can breathe the breath of life into the dry bones it is the fashion for the dry of dust to belabour him as one who has wandered away from the orthodox path and must necessarily be inaccurate so food was also attacked also macaulay in his day but both will be read when the pedants are forgotten if i were asked my very ideal of how history should be written i think i should point to those two rows on yonder shelf the one mccarthy's history of our own times the other lecky's history of england in the eighteenth century curious that each should have been written by an irishman and that though of opposite politics and living in an age when irish affairs have caused such bitterness both should be conspicuous not merely for all literary graces but for that broad toleration which sees every side of a question and handles every problem from the point of view of the philosophic observer and never of the sectarian partisan by the way talking of history have you read parkman's works he was i think among the very greatest of the historians and yet one seldom hears his name a new england man by birth and writing principally of the early history of the american settlements and of french canada it is perhaps excusable that he should have no great vogue in england but even among americans i have found many who have not read him there are four of his volumes in the green and gold down yonder the jesuits in canada and frontenac but there are others all of them well worth reading pioneers of france montcalm and wolfe discovery of the great west etc some day i hope to have a complete set taking only that one book the jesuits in canada it is worth a reputation in itself and how noble a tribute is this which a man of puritan blood pays to that wonderful order he shows how in the heyday of their enthusiasm these brave soldiers of the cross invaded canada as they did china and every other place where danger was to be faced and a horrible death to be found i don't care what faith a man may profess or whether he be a christian at all but he cannot read these true records without feeling that the very highest that a man has ever evolved in sanctity and devotion was to be found among these marvellous men they were indeed the pioneers of civilization for apart from their doctrines they brought among the savages the highest european culture and in their own deportment an object lesson of how chastely austerely and nobly men could live france has sent myriads of brave men on to her battlefields but in all her long record of glory i do not think that she can point to any courage so steadfast and so absolutely heroic as that of the men of the iroquois mission how nobly they lived makes the body of the book how serenely they died forms the end to it it is a tale which cannot even now be read without a shudder a nightmare of horrors fanaticism may brace a man to hurl himself into oblivion as the mahdi's hordes did before khartoum but one feels that it is at least a higher development of such emotion 
where men slowly and in cold blood endure so thankless a life and welcome so dreadful an end. Every faith can equally boast its martyrs. Painful thought, since it shows how many thousands must have given their blood for error. But in testifying to their faith, these brave men have testified to something more important still, to the subjugation of the body and to the absolute supremacy of the dominating spirit. The story of Father Jagout is but one of many, and yet it is worth recounting as showing the spirit of the men. He also was on the Iroquois mission and was so tortured and mutilated by his sweet parishioners that the very dogs used to howl at his distorted figure. He made his way back to France, not for any reason of personal rest or recuperation, but because he needed a special dispensation to say Mass. The Catholic Church has a regulation that a priest shall not be deformed, so that the savages with their knives had wrought better than they knew. He received his dispensation and was sent for by Louis the Fourteenth, who asked him what he could do for him. No doubt the assembled courtiers expected to hear him ask for the next vacant bishopric. What he did actually ask for, as the highest favour, was to be sent back to the Iroquois mission, where the savages signalised his arrival by burning him alive. Parkman is worth reading, if it were only for his account of the Indians. Perhaps the very strangest thing about them, and the most unaccountable, is their small numbers. The Iroquois were one of the most formidable of tribes. They were of the five nations whose scalping parties wandered over an expanse of thousands of square miles. Yet there is good reason to doubt whether the whole five nations could have put as many thousand warriors in the field. It was the same with all the other tribes of Northern Americans, both in the East, the North and the West. Their numbers were always insignificant, and yet they had that huge country to themselves, the best of climates and plenty of food. Why was it that they did not people it thickly? It may be taken as a striking example of the purpose and design which run through the affairs of men, that at the very moment when the old world was ready to overflow, the new world was empty to receive it. Had North America been peopled as China is peopled, the Europeans might have founded some settlements, but could never have taken possession of the continent. Buffon has made the striking remark that the creative power appeared to have never had greater vigour in America. He alluded to the abundance of the flora and fauna as compared with that of other great divisions of the earth's surface. Whether the numbers of Indians are an illustration of the same fact, or whether there is some special cause, it is beyond my very modest scientific attainments. When one reflects upon the countless herds of bison which used to cover the western plains, or marks the present day the race statistics of the French Canadians at one end of the continent, and of the southern negro at the other, it seems absurd to suppose that there is any geographical reason against nature being as prolific here as elsewhere. However, these be deeper waters, and with your leave we will get back to my usual six-inch wading depth once more. End of chapter 9